Chapter 32 of Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve She found that she could cope. Earlier she had wanted to curl up in a corner and die of grief, but now she was all right. It made her remember the way she had felt when her mother died, flattened by the great numb blow of it, and faintly surprised at the way life kept going on. And at least this time she had Dog to help her, and Bevis. Kate, I, I need another bolt, like this one, but a uh, longer. She had come to think of Bevis Pod as a sweet, clumsy, rather useless person, someone who needed her to look after him, and she suspected that was how the historians all thought of him as well. But that afternoon she had begun to understand that he was really much cleverer than her. She watched him work, hunched under a portable argon globe in a corner of the transport gallery, carefully measuring out the right amounts of scrubbing powder and picture-cleaning fluid. Now he was building a timing mechanism out of lengths of copper picture wire and parts from the dashboard of a centuries-old bug, fitting it all into the satchel she had found for him. A bolt? Kate? Oh, uh, yes! She ratched quickly through the pile of spare parts on the floor beside him and found what he wanted, handed it to him, checked her watch. It was eight o'clock. Soon she would have to go back to Cleo House and fit a smile onto her face and say to Father, I'm sorry I was so silly earlier. Welcome home. Please, can I make with, can I come with you to the Lord Mayor's party? There, said Bevis, holding up the satchel. It's done. It doesn't look like a bomb. That's the idea, silly. Look. He opened it up and showed her the package nestled inside, the red button that she had to push to arm it, and the timing mechanism. It won't make a very big bang, he admitted, but if you can get it close enough to the computer brain, I'll find a way she promised, taking it from him. I'm Valentine's daughter. If anybody can get to Medusa, it's me. He looked rueful, she thought, and she wondered if he was thinking of all that wonderful old-world computing power, an engineer's dream, about to be sacrificed. I've got to do it, she said. I know. I wish I could come with you, though. She hugged him, pressing her face against his, his face, her mouth against his mouth, feeling him shiver as his hands came up nervously to stroke and stroke her hair. Dog gave a soft growl, jealous perhaps, afraid that he was losing Catherine's love, and would soon be abandoned, like the poor old soft toys on the shelves in her bedrooms. "'What's to become of us?' she whispered, pulling back, trembling. The sound of distant shouting reached them, echoing up the stairwell from the lower floors. It was too faint to make out any words, but they both knew at once that something must be wrong. Nobody ever shouted in the museum. Dog's growl grew louder. He went running to the door, and they both followed him, pushing their way quietly out onto the darkening, darkened landing. A cool breeze touched their faces as they peered over the handrail and down the long spiral of stairs, dwindling into darkness below with the bronze handrails gleaming. More shouts. Then the bang and clatter of something dropped. Flashlight beams stabbed a lower landing, and they heard the shouting voice quite clear, Chudley Pomeroy saying, This is an outrage, an outrage! You are trespassing on the property of the Guild of Historians! The engineer's security team came up the stairs in a slapping rush of rubber-soled boots, flashlights sliding over their coats and their shiny, complicated guns. They slowed as they reached the top and saw a dog's eyes flashing. His ears flattened backward as he growled and growled and crouched to spring. Guns flicked toward him, and Catherine grabbed him by the collar and shouted, He won't hurt you! He's just frightened! Don't shoot! But they shot him anyway. 
the guns giving sharp little cracks and the impact of the bullets wrenching Dog away from her and slamming him back against the wall with a yelp. Then silence, and the whispering sound of the big body falling. In the dancing flashlights, the blood looked black. Catherine gasped for breath. Her arms and legs were shaking with a quick, helpless shudder that she couldn't stop. She could not have moved if she had wanted to, but just in case, a sharp voice barked. Stay where you are, Miss Valentine. Dog, she managed to whine. Stay where you are. The brute is dead. Dr. Vanbrace came up the stairs through the thin, shifting smoke. You too, Pod, he added, seeing the boy make a twitching move toward the body. He stood on the top step and smiled at them. We've been looking everywhere for you, apprentice. I hope you're ashamed of yourself. Give me that satchel. Bevis held it out, and the tall engineer snatched it from him and opened it. Just as Maliphant warned us. A bomb. Two of his men stepped forward and hauled the prisoners after him as he turned and started down the stairs. No, wailed Catherine, struggling to keep hold of Bevis's hand as they were dragged apart. No, her voice bounced shrilly back at her from the ceiling and went echoing away down the stairwell, and she thought it sounded frail and helpless, like a child having a tantrum, a child caught playing some stupid, naughty trick and protesting at its punishment. She kicked at the shins of the man who held her, but he was a big man and booted and didn't even wince. Where are you taking us? You are coming with me to talk tear, Miss Valentine, said Vanbrace. You will be quite the talking point of the Lord Mayor's little party. As for your sweetheart here, he'll be taken to the deep gut. He grinned at the little noise Bevis made, a helpless, gulped-back squeak of fear. Oh, yes, Apprentice Pod, some very interesting experiences await you in the deep gut. It wasn't his fault, Catherine protested. She could feel things unraveling, her foolish plan running out of control and lashing backward to entrap her and Bevis and poor dog. I made him help me, she shrieked. It's nothing to do with Bevis. But Vanbrace had already turned away, and her captor clamped a chemical-tasting hand across her mouth to stop her noise. Valentine's bug pulls up outside the guild hall, where the bugs of most of the guild heads are already parked. Gensch gets out and holds the lid open for his master, then fusses over him like a mother sending her child off to school, brushing his hair off his face and straightening the collar of his best black robe, buffing the hilt of his sword. Valentine looks absently up at the sky, high feathery clouds lit by the fast-sinking sun. The wind is still blowing from the east, and it brings a smell of snow that cuts through his thoughts of Catherine for a moment, making him think again of Shanguo. Hester Shaw will find you, the windflower had whispered, dying. But how could she have known about Hester? She could not have met the girl, could she? Could she? Is Hester still alive? Has she made her way somehow to Batmont Gampa, and is she waiting in those mountains now, ready to climb back aboard London and try again to kill him, or worse, to harm his daughter? Pushing Gensh's big hands away, he says, If you don't mind missing the party, boys, it might be worth taking the 13th floor elevator up for a spin tonight, just in case those poor brave souls from the League try anything. Right you are, Chief. The two old airmen have not been looking forward to the Lord Mayor's reception. All that finger food and posh chat. Nothing could cheer them up better than the prospect of a good fight. Gensh climbs in next to Pusey, and the bug veers away, startling engineers and beef-eaters out of its path. Valentine straightens his own tie and walks quickly up the steps into the guild hall. The engineers marched their prisoners through the lower galleries of the museum to the main hall. There was nobody around. 
Catherine had never seen the museum as empty as this. Where were the historians? She knew they couldn't help her, but she wanted to see them, to know that somebody knew what had become of her. She kept listening for the pattering feet of dog on the floor behind her, and being surprised when she couldn't hear them, and then remembering. Bevis was marching next to her, but he wouldn't look at her, just stared straight ahead as if he could already see the chambers of the deep gut and the things that would happen to him there. Then at the top of the steps that led down to the main entrance, the engineers halted. Down in the foyer, their backs to the big glass doors, the historians were waiting. While Van Brace's men were busy upstairs, they had raided the display cases in the weapons and warfare gallery, arming themselves with ancient pikes and muskets, rusty swords and tin helmets. Some had strapped breastplates over their black robes, and others carried shields. They looked like a chorus of brigands in an amateur pantomime. "'What is the meaning of this?' barked Dr. Van Brace. Chudley Pomeroy stepped forward, holding a blunderbuss with a brass muzzle as broad as a tuba's. Catherine started to realize that other historians were watching from the shadows at the edges of the hall, lurking behind display cases, pointing steam-powered rifles through the articulated ribs of dinosaurs. "'Gentlemen,' said Pomeroy nervously, "'you are on the property of the Guild of Historians. I suggest that you unhand those young people immediately.' "'Immediately,' agreed Dr. Karuna, training her dusty mu musket on the red wheel between Van Brace's eyebrows." The engineer began to laugh. <laughs> you old fools! Do you think that you can defy us? Your guild will be disbanded because of what you've done here today. Your silly trifles and trinkets will be fed to the furnaces, and your bodies will be broken on engines of pain in the deep gut. We'll make you history, since history is all you care about. We are the guild of engineers. <laughs> we are the future. There was a heartbeat pause, near silent just the echo of Van Brace's voice hanging on the musty air and the faint sounds of men reaching for guns and arthritic fingers tightening on ancient triggers. Then the foyer vanished into smoke and stabbing darts of fire, and the noise bounced from the high-domed roof and came slamming down again, a ragged crackle of spit by the deep boom of Pomeroy's blunderbuss and the shrieking roar of an old cannon concealed in a niche behind the ticket office, which went off with a great jet of flame as Dr. Nankaro set his lighter to the touch hole. Catherine saw Van Brace and the two men next to him swiped aside. Dr. Arkengarth fell backward with his arms windmilling, felt the man who held her jerk and stumble and the thick slap as a musket ball went through his rubber coat. He fell away from her and she dropped to her knees, wondering where to hide. Nothing remained of Van Brace but his smoldering boots, which has been cartoony and almost funny except that his feet were still inside them. Half his men were down, but the rest were rallying, and they had better weapons than the historians. They sprayed the foyer with gunfire, striking sparks from the marble floor and flinging splinters of dinosaur bone high into the air. Display cases came apart in bright cataracts of powdered glass, and the historians who were cowering behind them went scrambling back to other hiding places or fell among the fallen exhibits and lay still. Above them, argon globes smashed and guttered until the hall was dark, stuttering like sign film in the migraine flicker of gunlight, and the engineers pushed forward through, its, through it toward the doors. Behind them, forgotten, Bevis Pod reached for an abandoned gun and swung it up, his long hands feeling their way across the shiny metal for catches and triggers. Catherine watched him. The air around her was thick with wailing shot and whirling chips of marble and moaning battle frisbees, but she could not tear her eyes or her mind away from Bevis long enough to think about finding cover. 
She watched him unfold the gun's spindly armrest and wedge it into the crook of his elbow, and saw the small blue holes it made in the backs of the engineers' coats. They flung up their arms and dropped their guns and spun around and fell, and Bevispod watched them through the bucking, bucking sights with a calm, serious look, not her gentle Bevis anymore, but someone who could kill quite coldly, as if the engineer in him really did have no regard for human life. Or maybe he had just seen so much death in the deep gut that he thought it was a little thing and did not mind dealing it out. And when he stopped shooting, it was very quiet, just the rubbery lisp of the corpses settling and a quick bony rattle that Catherine slowly recognized as the sound of her own teeth chattering. From the corners of the hall, historians came creeping out. There were more of them than Catherine had feared. In the flicker of battle, she had thought she saw all of them shot, but although some were wounded, the only ones dead were a, were a man called Weymouth, whom she had never spoken to, and Dr. Arkengarth. The old curator of ceramics lay near the door, looking indignant, as if death was a silly modern fad that he rarely disapproved of, but he rather disapproved of. Bevis Pod knelt staring at the gun in his hands, and his hands were shaking, and blue smoke unraveled from the mouth of the gun and drifted up in scrolls and curlicues toward the roof. Pomeroy came stumping up the stairs. His wig had been blown off, and he was nursing a wound on his arm where a splinter of bone had cut him. "'Look at that!' he said. "'They must be the first person to be harmed by a dinosaur for millions of years!' <laughs> he blinked at Catherine and Bevis, then at the fallen engineers. None of them were laughing at his little joke. "'Well?' he said. "'Well, uh, we showed them. As soon as I told the others what was going on, we all agreed it wouldn't do. Well, most of us did.' The rest are locked in the canteen, along with any apprentices we thought might support Chrome's men. You should have seen us, Kate. We won't let them take Miss Valentine, we all said, and we didn't. It goes to show, you know, an engineer is no match for a historian with his dander up. Or her dander, chirped Moira Plym, hurrying up the steps to stand beside him. Oh, that'll teach them to fiddle with my furniture, all right. That'll show them what happens to... The visor of the helmet she was wearing snapped shut, muffling the rest. Catherine found the fallen satchel, lying in the muck and blood on the stairs. It seemed to be undamaged, except for some unpleasant stains. "'I've got to go to top tier. Stop Medusa. It's the only way. I'll go to the elevator station and—' "'No!' Clyde Potts came bounding up the steps from the front entrance. "'A couple of engineers who were stationed outside got away,' she said. "'They'll have raised the alarm.' There'll be a guard on the elevators, and more security men here at any minute. Stalkers, too, probably. She met Pomeroy's worried gaze, and dipped her head as if she, it was all her fault. I'm sorry. That's all right, Miss Potts. Pomeroy slapped her kindly on the shoulder, almost knocking her over. Don't worry, Catherine. We'll keep the devils busy here, and you can sneak up to top tier by the cat's creep. What's that? asked Catherine. It's the sort of things historians know about, and everybody else has forgotten, said Pomeroy, beaming. An old stairway, left over from the first days of London, when the elevator system couldn't always be relied on. It goes up from, from tier three to top tier, passing through the museum on the way. Are you ready to travel? She wasn't, but she nodded. I'm going with her, said Bevis. No, it's all right, Kate. I want to. He was turning dead engineers over, looking for a code without too many holes in it. When he found one, he began to fumble with the rubber buttons. If the engineers see you walking about alone up there, they'll guess what happened, he explained. But if I'm with you, they'll think you're a prisoner. 
He's right, Kate, said Pomeroy, nodding, as Clyde Potts helped the young engineer into the coat and wiped away the worst of the blood with the hem of her robe. He checked his watch. Eight thirty. Medusa goes off at nine, according to the goggle screens. That should give you plenty of time to do whatever you're planning to do. But we'd better start you on your way before those engineers get back with reinforcements. <laughs>